I'm good, Tolo. You got me? All right. Good morning. Y'all sound tired. We just sang to the Lord. You was fired up 10 minutes ago. Announcements killed y'all like that. I mean, Zach. Announcements hurt y'all like that. We need to sing and dance and do that. This Wednesday, really. Next time Manny stay up here, we're going to work something out. Y'all was like, good morning. Like, this the worst part of your day or something? My gosh. Man, matter of fact, JP, come on. Never mind. We ain't sticking to We ain't ready. JP, come back. Let's lead us in worship, man. We ain't doing no message today. I can't preach like that. We have been in a series on bitterness that is now extended to forgiveness, and we have heard many things. Stuff like offenses will come, as we heard a couple weeks ago. When you when you research, when I'm researching these messages, there are times when certain verses will come to my attention that I just forgot about. That, that, that are relevant to the topic that we're going to be talking about. And I wanted to share one this morning that I just thought, wow, this is really relevant to forgiveness, offenses, and so forth. And it's Job 19.17. Job, it says this. He says, my breath is offensive to my wife. And my own family finds me repulsive. That sounds like a passage on marriage to me. <laughs> Husbands. You will embitter your wife if your breath is not well. If your wife is constantly singing it is well with my soul, it might mean that it is sinful in your mouth. Do you know some people would actually take this verse and teach a whole message on that and extrapolate this as if that's what it means? That's not what we do here, but I thought it was funny because I'm sure my breath has been offensive to my wife. Don't act like yours hasn't either. Single or married. There's a reason why Wrigley's gum exists. All right, previously in Solid Rock, we've heard about forgiveness and forgiveness. We talked about this last week is in sort of a transition. It's in the middle of justice where sins are forgiven. No sin goes unpunished. So the question is not, who gets away with it, it's who takes responsibility for it. So if you're a Christian, a genuine believer, then Jesus has taken the punishment for your sin. That is justice. It's done to Jesus. If you are not a genuine Christian and when you stand before God, you will take the punishment for your sins. It's just that basic. That's basic Christianity 101. Justice, forgiveness, and forgiveness extends to reconciliation. So the fact that Jesus died on the cross made it possible for us to be forgiven by God and to be reconciled in some form of restored relationship. So on earth, the model is the same because we're aware that a justice has occurred in Jesus. Forgiveness comes from us with the hope that reconciliation remains between us. We are to imitate God's forgiveness towards others. We saw this in Ephesians 4.32, where the verse simply says, And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. 
same, same verbiage in Colossians 3. Therefore, as God's chosen ones and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. There's a responsibility not just to forgive people, but to forgive the way we have been forgiven. This makes forgiveness different for those of us who profess to be a Christian. It's not just we forgive, but we forgive in the likeness of the way that we have been forgiven. Now, we understand from last week that the forgiveness that we have received from God that we are to give to others does not include a loss of memory. It does not mean that we, do, we forget what has been done to us. God does not forget the sins we commit against him. He just uses figurative language to say that there's not going to be a punishment for those sins. But it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not. If you're a Christian, it was at the expense of Jesus Christ. I've said this in the past, and I'll say it again in this moment. If anyone thinks that the forgiveness that comes from God to us was somewhat effortless because Jesus is the Son of God, then you've misunderstood the Garden of Gethsemane. If anyone thinks that it's just God's job to forgive and it was just this effortless thing that he does because he's God and there's really nothing for him to forgive, then we don't understand Jesus crying out to God right before the crucifixion to take the crucifixion from me because I don't want to experience your wrath even for the forgiveness of the sins of many. It was not an easy thing for God to sacrifice his son. And it couldn't have been easy to hear that prayer being prayed by his son. Forgiveness is not a loss of memory, but it also does not mean there's no consequence. Forgiveness does not mean a removal of consequences. It doesn't mean there's always a consequence. But it doesn't mean that true forgiveness is not the removal. God doesn't remove. He removes the ultimate consequence. But there are consequences that still occur. And that's a reality. This is important to remember. Because people, Christians particularly, will use this against you. So if there are relational consequences for you being sinned against, some Christians will use it against you if it's still difficult for you to, to entertain the same level of relationship with them. Or they'll say something like, well, you haven't forgiven me then because we should be able to be this. But see, that's not the way that the Bible works. You see, biblically speaking, that, that's called insisting on your own way. You can't force people to be reconciled to you. You can only live at peace with them as far as it depends on you. But not everyone is going to respond. Let's just be honest. 
A lot of us struggle with a lot of sins. Now you're going to hold up me reconciling to you as the, the unpardonable one? All of a sudden, that becomes the issue. A lot of times, people don't want there to be consequences when they sin against you. I've done that. I've sinned against my wife and want her to get over Like, why are you still upset about that? I asked for forgiveness. I know I'm not the only one. We want people to be like, okay, forgive and forget. That's not a biblical reality. It's forgive and remember not to choke you out for what you did is more <laughs> biblical. I'm, for, I'm forgetting to act on the sin against me. There are consequences. We have to know that. The Bible tells us he has not dealt with us as our sins deserve from Psalm 103, which means punishment and vengeance are not going to come our way from God that we rightly deserve. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. So God isn't taking vengeance. We saw in Romans 12, 19, friends, do not avenge yourself. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. We saw in 103, Psalm 103, that he said this, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It's figurative language to say that he has made a permanent distance from the sin and, pun and the punishment that we deserve. I'm separating those. East will never meet west unless it's inception and the world just flows up like that. They don't meet. So the punishment that we deserve is not met because of the forgiveness of God. But it doesn't mean there's no consequences. There's no punishment. There's no discipline. We know that God disciplines those he loves as sons. Now, in all the questions that we've heard for the last few weeks, one thing that you must remember about forgiveness as a Christian, forgiveness is not an action or just a decision. We talk about, we're asking questions because we're figuring out the details, and we kind of view it as an action or a decision. But biblically speaking, forgiveness is a posture of the heart. It's not just something that you agree to do or something that you do, but it's actually who you are. God said, remember Matthew 18, the parable of the merciful servant? We, we saw this in verses 33 through 35 of Matthew 18. When he said, shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow servant as I've had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgive his sister or brother from his heart. Forgiveness is not something that we do. It's who we are. A Christian who does not forgive is not a Christian from God's perspective. This from your heart is genuine. It's a posture. It's who we are. It's not just what we do. Anyone can forgive someone else. Non-Christians forgive each other all the time. So what makes their forgiveness different from the one that God is calling us to? 
many religions stress the importance of not holding grudges and forgiving. So what makes our forgiveness glorifying to God when billions of people forgive each other every day? I'm going to let that question sit. Forgiveness is not just something we do. It's an expression of who we are. And a Christian who does not forgive is not a Christian from God's perspective. It's not, it's not optional. And that is a challenge. Because as we've already heard, we have a barometer. How great this sin is against me and how often you do it will determine whether or not, for some people, whether or not I forgive you. That's a dangerous place to be. Forgiveness is who we are. It's an expression of our faith that we have been forgiven. And if forgiveness is something that you struggle with as a Christian, talking about biblical forgiveness, not the forgive and forget, no consequences, no nothing. I'm talking about biblical forgiveness. If that's something you struggle with, it's quite possible that you don't understand the forgiveness you've received from God. And if you don't understand that forgiveness, you definitely can't imitate it. Some of us in here may struggle with the fact that we don't really feel forgiven by God. And your struggle to forgive others may be you haven't really, you don't really believe it for yourself. We'll talk more about that in the, in the conclusion next week. Today I want to talk about forgiveness from us. Last week it was forgiveness to us. How does God forgive us so that we can imitate? So then what does forgiveness look like from us? What does it look like? How do we do it like the way the Lord required? Is it forgive and forget? Is it all these different wonderful idioms of forgiveness? What does it look like? Well, forgiveness is not a one-size-fits-all. There are at least four clear ways that the Bible talks about forgiveness in the New Testament. We're going to examine each of those to get a fuller picture of what exactly is God requiring us to do. What are our responsibilities as it relates to forgiving people who have sinned against us? I'm going to use two terms, and I'm going to explain what they mean now. Active forgiveness and passive forgiveness. Active forgiveness is some form of contact or conversation where forgiveness is extended to someone else. So it requires some transaction. The person being forgiven is aware that forgiveness is being granted to them. It's obvious. That's active forgiveness. There are times when the Bible calls us to be active to actually make sure the person knows I forgive you. But then there's passive forgiveness. And that's work done in oneself that doesn't necessarily include contact or conversation with that person to extend forgiveness. The person being forgiven may not even be aware that forgiveness is extended. It's work that you do in yourself to forgive a person. That's passive. 
It's not obvious in the sense that the person and you have had this exchange and it's communicated that you forgive them. There are times when God says, do the work in you. And sometimes that's all you can do. You may not even be in contact with this person anymore. You ever remember something that happened to you? Like I shared a couple weeks ago that hurt you, that may have even altered the trajectory of your life, but you don't have the means in which to talk to that person. Or that person is refusing to talk to you. What do you do with that? Active forgiveness, you say, well, then how can I forgive them? Because they're not asking for forgiveness. And that's not the only forgiveness that God is asking us to entertain. So let's look at these. Active forgiveness, number one. Let's return back to a passage that we looked at two weeks ago. Luke 17. Let's examine this passage a little bit more than we did two weeks ago. Jesus says this. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And as we know, humorously, or maybe, maybe it wasn't funny to Jesus, it was to me that the disciples had increased our faith. In other words, man, I can't be sinned against like this that often. And I can't, well, I can't, I can't, be, I can't forgive that often. That's a little too much, Lord. The language here is active. Look at what it says. You rebuke. You, that means you confront the person. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Notice that it doesn't say sins against you yet. It says if your brother sins, you rebuke him. To rebuke a person, you have to confront them. It's a verbal exchange. Rebuking is not shaking my head, SMH. <laughs> Watching someone sin and being like, Look at that. They ain't, they ain't changed a bit. That's not a rebuke. That's a self-righteous judgment. And that's fear of man because I can say it to myself, but I can't say it to them. This, this is, Jesus is talking about a verbal exchange. It's active. You confront this person. You rebuke them. It's not just praying to God or talking about it with others. You talk about it to them. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. This requires an active reality from each of us because we need to rebuke the person. Then it says, forgive. He says, listen, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. It says, must forgive. That is verbal confirmation. Jesus is not describing someone sins against you and says, I repent, and you just be like this. No, you say, I forgive you. The expectation here is that if someone says to you, please forgive me, or in this context, I repent, and you say, I forgive you. It's active. There's an exchange between you and an individual. This is an active participant. You rebuke them. They repented. You forgive. They sin. They ask for forgiveness. You forgive. There's an exchange. It's verbal and it's obvious. The person knows at least verbally that you said you're forgiven. 
you're forgiven. That's active forgiveness. It's obvious to the person, verbally at least, verbally. Let's go a little deeper with these two verses. There's a significance of these two verses that we must look at. See, we often focus on the frequency of being sinned against, and like the disciples, we miss the deeper point. First off, let's look at the order of the command. Someone sins, you rebuke them, they repent, you forgive them. Someone sins, you rebuke them, they repent, you forgive them. This is what Jesus is saying. When you see sin, you should rebuke it. Because a person who doesn't get rebuked for their sin may not know that they're sinning and won't actually ask you for forgiveness for sin. And you can be offended at people for sin that you're too afraid to tell them that they're doing. You must rebuke the sin so that a person has the opportunity to repent. Because whether you know it or not, a lot of sin is not intentional. It's just no one's told this person this was wrong. Whether we're too afraid or we convince ourselves that we got our own sin issues and we don't want to say nothing to somebody else, we don't want to come off a certain way, fine. Jesus said, take the log out of your eye. Do whatever work that needs to be done. But the command here for forgiveness to be extended is for you to say, hey, you wrong in this. This was wrong. If you don't rebuke, then a person can ask for forgiveness. And if you don't rebuke, then that person may not stop sinning and you'll be offended over and over and over again. And the reality is you're too afraid or too whatever to tell them to obey Jesus. See, the expectation is that when a person sins, you share it with them. If you don't share it with them, then don't be offended that they do it. Because we're not being faithful. Now, I know that there's challenges with that. I get it. There's relational distinctions. I get it. I'm, not a, I'm a pastor, but I'm not in deep relationship with everyone here. There are times I might ask someone else who's closer to a person, can they share a thought with this person? Because sometimes when it comes from me, it's like, oh, no. <laughs> hey, can I meet with you? Oh, I got go to the, I go to the principal's office. It's like, man, relax, fam. <laughs> relax. We might joke around, eat some donuts or something. And then I bust that head wide open. <laughs> Plenty of people here have, have, have been in my presence and know that, that I'm not the big bad wolf, as some people think. But there's a responsibility, though. You notice that it doesn't say, if someone sins, run and tell your pastor. It says, rebuke him. Some people come and tell us because you're too afraid to tell them. Or you tell God or you tell others. Nah, God said, tell them. I just don't want to hurt them. I don't, you know, what does the Bible say? Like, at what point does what Jesus said means more than how we think people feel? We live in a country, right? We live in a country that we call a socioeconomic capitalism, right? And capitalism is essentially just the privatization of business. Everything is pretty much privatized. Private companies make money, and that's, and that's a wonderful system, right? 
But that's not Christianity. We shouldn't privatize everything. We're so worried about privacy and stuff that we just walk ourselves into unfaithfulness. Thank you. That brother's a prophet back there. He is a troll and a prophet. And I love him. I love him. If the person sins, rebuke them. They can't ask for forgiveness if they're not aware that they've sinned. The other significant point about this verse is if he says, sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive him. I've said this before, but let me emphasize this again. Language matters. Sorry is when you accidentally spill coffee on someone. When you repent in this, or to use the language that we would today, would you forgive me? That is important because that person recognizes that there is a moral wrong. Forgiveness and the need for it is always connected to Jesus dying on the cross. Otherwise, that language doesn't carry any weight. For the believer, when we're asking for forgiveness, it's we recognize, we're recognizing verbally that a moral sin that caused Jesus to die needs to be reconciled, needs to be atoned for, needs to be forgiven. So when a person is coming back saying, I repent, or would you forgive me, they at least, whether they don't have the maturity to not do it as often, they at least recognize a biblical reality that a, a, a wrong that caused Jesus to die on the cross, I've done to you. A sin issue I've done, would you forgive me? That language means the person understands to some degree the reality of the redemption of the blood of Jesus. It is not semantics to say I'm sorry. Sorry isn't a moral wrong that Jesus died on the cross for. But when you say, will you forgive me? You're acknowledging that there has been a moral wrong I've done against you. To see why this is important, look at the words that Jesus says here again. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Look at the transaction. This person sins, you rebuke him, you, then you forgive him. They ask for forgiveness, I repent, you forgive him. Then in verse 4, if he sins against you seven times and comes back and saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Do you see what happens? When you rebuke the person, you introduce the category of the moral wrong that needs to be reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ between the two of you. Once that person becomes aware of it, now they have that category. Now they're speaking with the redemptive language. You see, it's important when you follow the biblical command, you may introduce to a person the seriousness of a sin that they don't think is that serious. And now all of a sudden, now they have in their minds the language of redemption. This person says, I repent, after they were rebuked. Sometimes rebuking people gives them the knowledge of the price that was paid for the sin. Another layer of this passage. 
is that rebuking someone is about redemption and restoration. Rebuking is not about telling people they offended you and how upset you are at them because they keep doing it. And see, this is why people can't resolve issues, because all you're trying to do is tell them how pissed off you are, what they do to you. And all of a sudden, now you just can't, you talking over each other, because once a person hears that, they get defended. I know I get defensive. You get defensive. Because one, no one wants to be told that they're sinful. Two, most times, you've sinned against that person too, and they can quickly remember stuff you've done that they've had to overlook. So as soon as you introduce their sin, in a way that the motive is to tell them what they keep doing that you hate, that's not redemptive. Rebuking is, is so a person is reminded that they are not living in accordance with their faith. And so I'm correcting you or rebuking you to restore you to that. This isn't about how often you offend me. Now that plays a role, of course. But that's not the primary role. What Jesus is talking about here is redemption. It's, it's justice, forgiveness, and reconciliation. This isn't, man, I'm tired of you doing this. And that's a lot of time, particularly in closer relationships, that's what it becomes. It's not about, we don't even think there's sinning against the Lord. It's only against us. I've totally forgot the reality that this sin ultimately is against the Lord. I'm just offended that you keep doing it to me. That's not Jesus' emphasis. Jesus isn't as concerned as how many times you're sinned against. That's why the disciples, they picked up on it. It was like, man, decrease our faith. They picked up on it. In Matthew 18, Jesus said 70 times 7. You never stop forgiving. And they were like, man, hold on. What are we talking about right now? But you know what? When Jesus said this to them in Luke 17 and that to them in Matthew 18, he hadn't gone to the cross yet. You see, they hadn't experienced the ultimate forgiveness. They hadn't seen Jesus actually die on the cross. They hadn't seen his back ripped open with 39 lashes. They hadn't seen him carry a 100-pound cross up a hill that was so heavy that they had to grab Simon of Cyrene out of the crowd to help Jesus carry it. They hadn't seen Jesus nailed to the cross and his clothes ripped open. They hadn't seen that yet. The only person that saw it was the Apostle John because the rest of them were in hiding. They hadn't seen Jesus rise from the dead and say, look, here are my holes. Thomas, put your finger in my side. They hadn't seen that yet. So they didn't understand the fullness of the forgiveness that Jesus was asking of them because they haven't seen it yet. But you and I are on the other side of the story. We've seen the forgiveness. So how dare we? Be ignorant of the responsibility to do it. Yes. It's why God said, uh-uh. If you don't forgive others, you definitely are not going to be forgiven by me. You see, they hadn't seen it yet. We've seen it. We've seen it for a couple thousand years. Rebuking is reminding people that they are not acting in accordance with their faith. It's not self-righteously judging them because they commit sins that you don't. Who cares if you don't commit that sin? It's not like you haven't in your heart before. 
what Jesus is after is like Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Here's what Jesus is after. Brothers and sisters, if someone sins, is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourself so that you also won't be tempted. So it says, look, when someone struggles with a sin, you don't self-righteously judge them or tell them how hurt you are by it and all that stuff. And, but it does say you who are spiritual. So, some, so that's it. you can evaluate, are you really spiritual? <laughs> Do you have the spiritual maturity to actually help this person? And if you don't, it's okay, but grow in it before you try to do it. You who are spiritual, not everybody is spiritual. If you cannot restore a person with a gentle spirit, but also watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. You know why he put that there? Because some of the sins that people do are attractive to us. We can, we can be like, man, these people, get to do, they just do whatever they want. They enjoy their life. And some sins, even though that they're sins, that we can be drawn to them. So he says, listen, restore people gently, but be careful so that you don't fall in the same way. Then he says this in verse 2, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. This is what happens. This is how forgiveness and, and reconciliation and all this plays out. We restore people. We, we ought to be careful that we don't fall into temptation. And it might not be that sin. It could be temptation to judge people for their struggle with sin. And that's more likely the reality is we judge people for their struggle with sin. Listen, if you're going to help somebody who's in sin, help them by thinking about what you struggle with the most and then how difficult, and then imagine that that's the sin that they're in right now. If you really want to help people, don't think about what you don't do or what you would never do. Think about what you struggle with the most and then say that that's this person's struggle, how hard it is for you to get over this thing. Think about it from that angle. Then you can help somebody. Yeah. If all you can do is be like, man, you, you know, whatever, then you can't, you're not spiritual enough. And I've been there. I've been there. I've, there are times I've been like, yeah, I'm not the best person to help. Active, we confront and we forgive. It's obvious. There's an exchange. Number two, Matthew chapter five. Active number two. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard it was said, verse 21, beginning of verse 21. You have heard it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Man, if I were teaching in this passage, I would just say two words, social media. Think of the things that get said about other believers from other believers. Mm -hmm. And if Jesus says here that calling someone a fool could send you to hell, be careful what you type. Be careful what you say about somebody else. Because a fool to us is nothing. That's not something I would consider going to hell for. Jesus said, we'll be subject to hell fire. Just for calling someone a fool angrily in their heart. Be careful what you tweet and what you put on your YouTube channel about other people. Be careful who you follow 
and like what they say. You know how you watch the videos? Oh, such and such eviscerated such and such. Yeah, be careful. Be careful about that. That's dangerous. It's dangerous. And then he says this in verse 23. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while, while you're on the way with him to the court or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and, and the judge to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So this, the command is bookended with his warning against anger in the heart and then his warning against unreconciled situations could lead to you facing real consequences, like going to court. In the middle of that is this small scene. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, first go and be reconciled your brother or sister, and then come off of your gift. This language is active. It's remembering your brother has something against you and telling you to go and be reconciled. Now, let me tell you what this is not saying. This is not saying, hey, I think such and such is mad at me, and you can't come and worship because of that. That's not what it's saying. If you look at the context it's clear that if you don't go reconcile with this person, this person may take you to court. So the, what God is saying is you know that you've offended this person. It's not, oh, you know what, such and such gave me a look today. I need to go, let me, let me go check with them. And then you could do that all day. I think such and such is mad at me. You know what, I think I should go follow that car. They gave me the finger. They might be upset at me. Let me go make sure that they're good. <laughs> This isn't saying you just have to, you know what, somebody might be mad at me. No, this is saying, I know I've wronged this person, and God is saying, look, don't come here and worship me and give a sacrifice that represents you being reconciled to me when you know you've offended that person. You need to go back and be reconciled to them. That's what God is saying. This isn't this, oh, somebody might be mad at me. Let me, no, it's, I know I offended the person. And I haven't, I haven't reconciled it. I haven't gone back and asked for forgiveness. Let me read you a commentary. I thought this commentary was excellent. They describe it like this. Two different commentaries. Let me read this quickly. It says this. If God will punish anger, we cannot worship him with grudges unsettled. The prophets made much of the futility of worship without a corresponding purity of life. In other words, the prophets were like, hey, don't come worship unless your life is of one accord with God. Jesus elsewhere demanded a forgiving attitude of those who sought God's forgiveness. Here it is, the worshiper himself who was at fault and who therefore has it in his power to put matters right. Only so is his worship acceptable. The gift is presumably an animal sacrifice to offer which a layman was allowed to enter the court of the priest where the altar stood. Jesus' instruction to interpret such a solemn act indicates the importance of the demand. Its application is, of course, far wider than the specific occasion of sacrifice in the temple, and therefore an experience for his Galilean audience. So in other words, what he's saying is that 
the animal sacrifice that Jesus is referring to was genuine. It was, it was one where you brought an animal to the altar. And that was considered a, a significant, a solemn act of gratitude for the forgiveness that you've received from God. And he's saying that it mean, it's way more significant than for God to say, forget that. Go back and, and resolve the issue that you have with your brother, that your brother has against you. Not his judgment of you, but the actual wrong that you've committed against him. Another commentator says this, because of the dangerous position in which he finds himself, the angry person must take care how he worships. The change from everyone to you sharpens the personal application. The word for our offering is the verb nom normally used for the offering of sacrifice, and the gift is often used of what is sacrificed. Altar is sometimes used metaphorically, but here, the literal altar in the temple at Jerusalem is meant. Jesus is depicting a man in the solemn act of sacrifice. The present tense pictures the worshiper as in the act of offering, and right there at the altar, he remembers something is a very general expression. The brother is thought of as having a legitimate complaint against the worshiper. Interestingly, it is not the anger of the person Jesus is addressing of which he speaks, but the anger provoked by that person. It's not enough to control one's temper, though that is important. One must not arouse other people's anger. Then it says this, leave your gift is a sharp command. There is something more urgent than completing the act of sacrifice. The worshiper is to leave the animal right there in front of the altar and go. The interruption of so solemn an act emphasizes the overriding importance of reconciliation. First has a time reference. In the first place, before doing anything else, it is important that the worshiper get his priorities right. And the first thing to do is to effect reconciliation. He must take whatever steps are needed to restore harmony, and only when this is done may he come back and resume his offering. The act of sacrifice is not as important as the spirit in which it is done. So practically today, this isn't saying don't come to church unless you... It's saying be quick to reconcile the things that you know you've done wrong to a person. Because if you don't, then God sees the worship as not genuine. It's active. It means I, re I remember this person has done, I've offended this person and we haven't resolved it. I may have been unwilling to, maybe I forgot, but for whatever reason, I remember, oh man, wow. It might be something small as, listen, I was in need, this person let me borrow some money, I told him I'd pay him back, and I haven't yet, and I haven't said anything to him, maybe presuming on them because they're Christians that they're going to overlook it, that person may be struggling, you come in, fresh pair of shoes on, hey, I got the new Apple Watch, and that person is like, man, I'm not even able to eat no apples because of, could be, man, go pay that person their money. It could be you're in church and you've been in conflict with somebody. And you know you said some things that are hurtful. 
you might need to go up, tap that person to say, hey, can we go outside and talk for a second? And if you miss singing worship or you miss the message, then so be it. This, this is not more important to God than making sure that two people who love him love each other. This isn't, God is not impressed if you hear the message. He's impressed if you actually apply it. God is not impressed with me because I teach the message. I don't get points for saying it. I get points for living it. If I don't do what I'm saying, then what good is it? Y'all might be impressed, but he's not. He's not impressed with none of that stuff. All these jokes and stuff, that cool. He created me to be funny. He's not impressed by it. What he's impressed by is I'm actually trying to live it. He's impressed not by if you come to church and if you sing, but do you do what he says, whether you're in church or not. So if you're in church and you know you got challenges with somebody, especially if you're not going to talk to them immediately afterwards, then you go up to them and say, hey, can we talk for a minute outside? Let's resolve this issue. And if it takes all the whole experience, God is glorified. You ain't missed that much anyway. You can go back and watch it afterwards, but you can't go back and resolve that issue. That person may be, get to the point where they get so offended that it's no longer able to resolve it. Which, in the analogy, we're going to court, and now there are real consequences. That's his point. That's active. Man, I offended this person. I should go back and make sure. All right, now we move to the passive. Two commands for passive. Passive, Romans 12, 17 and 18. Use this verse a lot, particularly 18. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's sight. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. On one level, the command here sounds active. But remember, I'm describing, I'm describing passive as something done in myself. It's something done in you that others may not even be aware of. It may not be obvious to the person. It's passive in that sense. The emphasis is on you. You live at peace with everyone. I love this verse because God is making it clear that, listen, you can't control others, but you can control how you respond to others. There are some people whom you sin against and offend who will make that the greatest offense they've experienced. True, maybe not, but they will not reconcile with you. You may try to ask for forgiveness. They may be unappeasable. I've been accused of things I didn't even do and thought, well, let me just go and let me tell this person I love them. I'll apologize. I've even said, forgive me for, even though I didn't think what I did was sinful, I've even gone to that of, Nope. Me and Mike sat in a room right there with two people. One of the people told us, listen, this person's offended at you, Kurt. They just need to know that you love them and care about them. Remember that? And so I said, listen, 
beginning of the meeting. Shared, but I love this person. This was a misunderstanding. We process the situation differently. Brother, we've been friends for some time. Let's go have some dinner. Let's talk through it. I love you, your little bro. Woo, 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 woo. Should have seen the bitterness on that face. They said something that was obvious. And I just looked at Mike like, all right, well, here we go. Here we go. As far as it depends on me, I can live peaceable. I'm not holding it against you. I'm not every time I see you angry at you. I'm not. I've tried to reconcile, so I'm not going to remember that you got something against me. If you're refusing to give me forgiveness, and that's a wrap. Sometimes when you obey God, just so that your conscience is clear. There are times, I just, I'm doing it because my conscience is clear. I'm just like, all right, I, I, my conscience is clear. I've asked other people, did you see this? You saw the situation? What's your perspective? Once my conscience is clear, that's it, because I can't do anything else. I'm not running around chasing everybody that may or may be offended, because some stuff is not even sin. Listen, if you got offended at a decision we made and you haven't talked to us about it, I'm not going to feel bad about it. I'm not losing any sleep because it's not sin, and, and you're, you apparently are unwilling to to overlook it. The reality here is we're just, we cannot control how other people respond. We cannot control if people say, yes, I forgive you. We cannot control if people ask you to forgive them. I can just be like, look, I ain't walking around, I ain't losing, I'm not sitting around thinking about them all day. The phrase to be at peace at best is just to have harmonious relations with people and freedom from disputes. As long as you can do that, which means I'm not going to sit around and be so practically. OK, I'm not going to sit around and talk about this person. I'm not going uh, I'm not. I mean, there are times I'm not even going to give a lot of thought to this anymore. Yeah. Like it's just like I, this person is just unwilling to no matter what I say. It's like it's always OK. Then I got to let the Lord. I can trust the grace of God for somebody else and live at peace with them. This, this verse frees me from feeling like unless they forgive me, then I really need to go above and beyond. Above and beyond at some point, it's like, all right, I, have to, I just can only. This, this command reminds me of in Matthew 19 where they were asking Moses about marriage and divorce. And... Uh, they said this to Jesus, talking about marriage in Matthew 19, verse 7. They said this to Jesus. They said, why then, they asked him, him being Jesus, why did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? He, being Jesus, told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. What he was saying was divorce is not something that God desires of or approves of, but he understands the human condition and will sometimes act in such a way that divorce is allowable. It's the same way with reconciliation. It is not God's desire that there be conflict between though his children. He hates that. That's not what he desires. But he knows that sin is real and that offenses will come. Hardness of heart, sinful attitudes and actions will prevent reconciliation 
and forgiveness from happening. So as best as you can, live at peace with everyone. How do you do that? I'm just not going to repay the evil for evil. Now, this isn't a get-out-of-jail card, get-out-of-jail-free card from forgiving other people. It just says God recognizes that some people, it's just going to be a much tougher road than you thought it would be, than it should be for real. But it's also not saying you have to be cool with everyone who has offended you. To live peaceably with some people, it may mean you have to remove yourself from being around them for a season, or maybe for longer. And that's a consequence of sin. I grew up, y'all know I grew up in the streets, and there's their friends that I have that I love. I mean, I put my life on the line for these guys often. But when I became a Christian, and I would go back to the haven, it just started to look different to me. And the more and more I became a follower of Christ and tried to honor the Lord, the streets just looked different to me. It's just like these relationships just seem like they're not based on reality anymore. Or they're not based on my reality. It started to look different. What people would say that used to be funny to me started to be like, wow. These dudes is lost, for real. The activities we used to do that we look forward to to celebrate all of a sudden became like, nah, fam, like I don't. And I just got to the point where I was like, you know what? I think I remember one day I was in my house and I just said to myself, you know what? I think I'm done with the Haven. I never thought I'd say that because I love these dudes. I put a lot of work in with these guys. We shot at and got shot back at. We did all of it together. And I just said one day, you know what? I'm done with the haven. Like, I'm just, I'm just done. Like, I don't, I can't. So when I got married, only two of those dudes were invited to my wedding. Because I was like, I don't even want that element around. Now, someone could say, well, that's, but you, well, what about sharing the gospel with them? What about this and that? It was like, listen, sometimes you just have to say, you know what? It's just, I got to entrust that to the Lord. I got to entrust that to the Lord. I got to entrust this relationship to the Lord because there are consequences for sin. And some of them may mean to live peaceably with this person. I just can't be around you like that. See, for me, I don't want to be around people if I'm, if I'm going to be tempted to sin because of what they've done. So I might just be like, you know what, I'm probably not going to go to that. Now, what I want to watch out for is if I can never then it's like, okay, the problem is me then. This isn't living peaceably. This is living selfishly. This might be living bitterly. It's just you have to evaluate. You have to evaluate. These aren't easy things. It's not like, oh, if you remember it, you don't, you don't forget. It's bitterness. No. I remember a lot of things that I don't even intend to remember. How many of you have heard a song that you haven't heard since you, for a long time? And you was right with it. As soon as you heard it, like, hold up. Oh, this should be my joy, right with it. You remember this song? You singing harder than you do in church. You singing out loud. You remember everything. You remember the little, the little run in the background they say? Oh, you remember all that. 
You haven't even heard that song in 25 years. It wasn't even on your mind. But as soon as you heard it, you remembered it and could just sing it like you just heard it, like you remember the times you went to have fun with it, all the memories that came attached to that song. You can't control that you remember that, but you can control how you respond to that. You can't control that you remember that somebody sinned against you, but you can control how you respond to that memory and that person. It's passive. We live peaceably with all, as best as we can. This, I, that doesn't, this person, there's no interaction. I just got to, let me just do me. Let me guard myself. Let me make sure I'm good. I had a working relationship with a, with a boss. Man, she was just brutal. She was known for it. That was her reputation. The dude who trained me was like, hey, look, hey, be careful, man. He said, like, I could tell people like you, you crack jokes and stuff, but he said, but don't, don't think because she's laughing that she's with He said, don't, don't tell you, don't trust it. And I was like, all right, cool, man. You know, I'm a good judge of character. I'm a good, I can read people. I, know, I can read the room. All right, cool. Appreciate it, man. Best of luck to you. Man, two weeks later, I was singing Public Enemy, can't trust it. I was just like, everything, I was like, wow. He wasn't lying. She didn't wait but a day or two before she showed her colors. I had to work at this job for over a year. And every, almost twice, a couple times, this woman would come in and tell me that I ain't do something that I did. Tell my supervisor. She was my direct head, but he was, she was a head head. He was out of direct supervisor. She said, he didn't do this, he didn't do that. I was like, bro, I, I did do that. Look. Oh, I just got here. How could I do that? I just got here. Like, it's not, it's on my, like, she was just all for it. And so I had to pray for this woman. I tried to figure out how can I serve this woman. I used to go in and say good morning to her. And listen, I was a new Christian. I'm not from that. <laughs> That's not even helpful what I was going to say. This is Sunday. So anyway, living at peace is practical, but it's not always easy. But it's biblical. Last passive. It's passive. Again, so this doesn't necessarily require contact or obvious to the person. Proverbs 19.11 says this. A person's insight gives him patience, and his virtue is to overlook an offense. You overlook it. Because your insight gives you patience. You overlook the offense. This person doesn't even know that you've done it. You just overlook it. In the modern wisdom of Frozen, you let it go. Let it go. Y'all, 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 there's some, some things y'all know about me. <laughs> you overlook the offense. That doesn't require any contact with the person. It just means, you know what? I'm just going to overlook it. In the New Testament, it's described as the passages that we've looked at before already, Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. So overlook the offense is described differently in the New Testament. It says this. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another is essentially overlooking. 
I'm just going to let me be patient with these people, right? A man's wisdom gives him patience. Gives you the ability to bear with other people. You overlook offenses. Colossians 3, 12 and 13 says this. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. So you endure something unpleasant. That's what it means to bear with. You endure something unpleasant or difficult, whether on behalf of yourself or someone else. That's what it means to endure, to bear with. You just overlook it. In my vernacular, you just say, man, I ain't tripping. You just overlook it. It's not even obvious to the person. So how does that look practically? Answer this question. What does forgiveness of God feel like to you? What does the forgiveness of God feel like to you? How do you know you're forgiven? Like, what does it feel like? When you ask for forgiveness, how do you know God said, all right, I forgive you? What does it feel like? Can you describe it? Many of us cannot. It's not obvious, not obvious. We believe it's true because the word says it. Maybe on some occasions you feel the spirit's presence and you feel like that, but most times you don't feel forgiven. You don't feel forgiven. People used to ask me, what does it feel like to be a pastor? The same way that it doesn't? Like, it's, not like I, it's not like I wake up, spirit, are you there? Curtis, I've made breakfast for you. Are you? I wake up, check my phone, be like, man, that's my move in this chess game. Let me, oh, I got a notification on Facebook. Man, should I post a picture on Instagram today? How many days is the last time I post? How many likes did I get on my last post? Let me see. Oh, I got notifications on Twitter. Let me see. Same thing. I do the same stuff. It ain't like I wake up like, oh, heavenly father. It's a discipline. It doesn't feel, I don't feel any different than being a pastor than when I didn't, except the weight of responsibility. Many of us can't describe what it feels like from God. It's not obvious. And so will our forgiveness be towards others when we overlook offenses. Often it will not be obvious to the person because it's the posture of the heart. It's an expression of who we are. I don't need to parade. Hey, hey, I forgave you. Remember that thing you did? Hey, just so you know, hey, I forgave you for that text you sent. Yep, yep. Just want you to know. Hey, forgiven by me. Most times, you don't say nothing. You just overlook it. Doesn't mean you don't remember it. And it doesn't mean there's no consequences for it. What it does mean is we don't treat people as their sins deserve. And we don't withhold forgiveness because they've hurt us. Because they've sinned against us seven times. Bitterness is forbidden for the Christian. It is forbidden. So our responsibilities are to be active. Sometimes we have to confront and then give forgiveness. We're to be active. Sometimes we've offended people and we need to pursue them and be reconciled. We need to be asking for forgiveness. 
not just waiting for it to be asked of us. Sometimes it's just passive. We can only focus on peace instead of all the pieces. It's like, you know what? I just, I can, I can, I've tried, I've tried to reconcile, I'm, you know. Sometimes, honestly, I kid you not, I take it from 1 Corinthians 4, my conscience is just clear, like I've, just, I've, done, I've done what I can do. If they're still offended, then I can't do anything about them. And sometimes it's passive where we just overlook, we just bear with people. We just don't even, we won't even make it obvious. These are the four ways. It's not one size fits all. It requires different things. So there are times, yes, if you're going to ask the question, you can't always verbally, actively extend forgiveness. But as a posture of the heart, that's always your disposition. It's always your disposition. But I will say this, if there are people in this room or on that screen and you know you've offended somebody, you need to get to them because some of you have waited too long. You've waited too long and the relationship may not be able to be repaired, but at least you can do what God's commanded of you. He's not impressed with whether you come to church or not, even though everybody should be coming to church just about now. He's not impressed, though. He's not impressed with me teaching these messages like, oh, this is a great series. Cool. I got to live everything I say, knowing that we're never going to do it perfectly. I heard a pastor say one time, he said, brother, you always preach a little better than you live. And I said, amen. That, that, was, that was comforting. It's like, thank you. That doesn't mean I shouldn't try to live it, though. It's not a get out of jail free card. It just acknowledges that, hey, you're always going to teach more passionately. And you apply. But make sure you apply. For all of us. Do not stand before the Lord and he tell you he doesn't know you. Not because you didn't believe theology, but because you didn't apply it. Next week, we'll conclude with forgiveness in us. How do we cultivate? How do we create habits? What do we do so that we are people who are willing to and actively forgive and passively forgive other people. And I will conclude, and then we'll be back in Romans. Let's pray. Father, there's so much to the, the concept, the biblical reality that you've laid out for us as it relates to forgiveness. And we thank you for that reality. I know that in many times, Lord, I failed to be faithful to do this. But by your grace, you've corrected me, you've disciplined me, you've reminded me, you've had friends confront me, rebuke me. And it doesn't always feel great, but it's worth it. Father, I pray that you'd give us wisdom because these aren't always, there's always some circumstances or some measure of things that you don't clearly describe. And so we operate in wisdom as what we think is best. Father, I pray that you would give each of us who struggle with bitterness or, or, just, or just forgiveness or needing to ask others for forgiveness or all, all that it encompasses, Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to be faithful, to glorify you, and that we would set aside the fear of man and, or the sinful judgments of others. or Lord, for we all 
fall short of the glory. Father, may those of us who are spiritual help those of us who have fallen in sin. Your word is clear that we do that gently. We restore gently. We'd be, aware, we'd be careful that we're not tempted either in self-righteousness because, Lord, sometimes you know, there are areas that are tough for us. All of us have tough areas. Lord, help us to remind ourselves of our tough areas when we're trying to help people with their tough areas. That there are blind spots in, in ways that we fail. It may not always be obvious to them, but they're always obvious to you. So may we be aware that you see everything, all that we are. May that guide us to be gracious, firm when necessary, loving always, and patient with one another. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Kurt. Um, first question I want to ask that's been received is, um, what exactly makes Christian forgiveness distinct from the other religions, worldviews, et cetera? You mentioned in your sermon that you were going to uh, answer that, and the person didn't catch it. I didn't answer it. Neither did I. So. I said, I'm going to let that sit. Oh, oh, oh Because sit. I intend to answer it next Sunday. Next Sunday, okay. okay. When we talk about forgiveness in us. So I'm not going to answer it today. I'm going to answer it next Sunday. All right. I just wanted to throw it out there. Because it's an important question. What makes our forgiveness different than the people right next door? What makes our forgiveness different? We're going to answer next Sunday. Um, where is uh, the place for forgiveness when I observe sin by or to someone else? Sin that's not directly against me. I think it's right where we ended. Overlook the offense. I think we overlook those offenses. And it I mean, that question is kind of broad, So I get, and I get it's a question, so I don't know if is that general? Like, is that on social media? Is that in my, do, is there any relational? So if there's a relational dynamic, I think we have somewhat of a responsibility and we have to evaluate that. Like, I'm not expecting everyone in here to start rebuking everyone when they see somebody do something, right? <laughs> <laughs> you gotta be careful. I think there is some relational dynamic at play, although I don't think it's necessarily biblically required. But I do think relational dynamics are wise. So it depends on the relational dynamics. Some people are just like, I've never really talked to this person, but the way he talked to his wife in public or the way he yelled at his kids or whatever, the way they, I'm going to say something to him. And I, you, have to, you have to take that into consideration. You know, so, but I think, yeah, I think most times we have to overlook a lot of offenses that we see happen to other people. Now, when it's family, again, relational proximity is huge. If somebody sins against my family or somebody, then I'm, I'm going to get involved. But that doesn't mean I'm going to be the one that goes to them and says, like, hey, what's going on over here? It might be. Hey, did you, how did you, how did you feel when it happened? Like, did you, maybe I, you know, but I, but I tend to, I try to ask questions because I might be wrong. I might just be, hey, did you, did you, somebody said, when this person said this, did you, how did you take that? Oh, no, it was just, you know, there's a difference between, oh, that's just how they are. And I want to know for that. Oh, you, okay, you ain't tripping because that's just how, you used to that. That doesn't, see, this is the thing. In community, we get used to each other, right? So then it just becomes who that person is. We have to sometimes step back objectively and say, okay, what's the Bible command, though? Like, I get, I'm used to the person. I get that. Mm -hmm. But, like, what is the Bible command, though? I'm, I think there's a thing as being too gracious. Yeah. I think we can err on the side of, like, I, and, I can, and I just think that's really not even too gracious. I think it's more fear of man. 
I just don't want to cause no issues, so I'm not really going to say nothing. So I'm going to err on the side of grace and pray for him. And that person is just parading like the emperor's got new clothes on. And it's like, now that's not loving. That's not always loving. So. But I think most times we should think in the category of overlooking an offense unless there's some relational proximity or responsibility to go to that person and say something. So um, there, there are a couple of questions that are embodied in this um, it's a theme. Um, so how do you address forgiveness to um, non-believing family members or friends or even someone you, don't, uh, you only know in passing? Um, how, in particular, <clears throat> one person asked, uh, how do you help someone who's a believer who seems to be bitter, embittered against family members who are not believers because of their worldliness? So they're embittered because of the worldliness of the unbelieving yeah. family members. So with stuff like that, particularly that issue, like bitterness at like non-Christians for their worldliness, I try to go to, so there's two passages I think that speak to this I mean, I think God is yelling. 1 Corinthians 5, and then 2 Timothy 2, 22 through 26. I, I, what I would do is if they're believers, this is a thing, like, so this is a thing, right? I think a lot of Christians, we're trying to help people by telling people what they should. Like, you got to help believers by, let the word speak. Like, we talk a lot, and we spend, have you ever counseled somebody and didn't even open the Bible one time and you talked for an hour? Like, I used to do that all the time. It's like, hold on, let, let's go to a passage real quick. Let's ground what I'm saying in a passage, right? Let me make sure. So even if I'm wrong, let me tell you why I'm saying this. A lot of times we're trying to help people just from, like, what should we tell them? And sometimes you have to say, hey, listen, how do you, how do you process being angry at non-Christians when, when Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2, that we should be... Um, we shouldn't be quarrelsome. I'm paraphrasing. We shouldn't be quarrelsome or offended because these people have been taken captive to do the devil's will. And that the Lord's servant, the Lord may grant them repentance by us being gracious towards them. Like, that's what he's saying. So we have to, we have to, the, the word covers a lot of it. So if you're a Christian and you see, and you're struggling with people's non-Christians sin, then on one level, it's like, well, why would they not sin though? Like, they're not believers. Like, why would they? That's 1 Corinthians 2. Like, they're man without the spirit. So the problem is not their sinfulness. It's our righteousness then. The problem is I'm a little too, like, because you would be like that if it weren't. There go I before the grace of God. So I, I would take him to Scripture and just say, hey, how, does, how do you process how you feel with what he, God says about non-Christians right here in 1 Corinthians 5? Like, how do you process that? Like, how do you process that? Because that's what you, you got to get people to think. Like, let, challenge them by the Bible. Because people get offended when you say it. When you open the Bible and say, well, let God say, if you're going to be offended, be offended to the right person. There you go. Be offended at God then, because here's what the Bible says. All right. Um, how do you reconcile? How do we reconcile the command to rebuke? I love the um, reconcile question. How do you reconcile? <laughs> rebuke the sin as found in Luke 17 and to overlook the offense as found in Proverbs 19. So again, those, so, so the way I'm describing it, those are two different, active and passive. The, I, think, and I think that's a judgment call. I think it depends, for me, it depends on the, 
way that the sin is manifested and what harm it's doing in the church. So if there's sin that's causing a lot of harm in the church, I don't have a lot of patience for that. And by patience, I don't mean like I'm going to be yelling. I just mean we're going to deal with it quickly. Like I'm not going to overlook that. I'm going to step to that person. We're going to talk through it. And if they're unwilling to repent, then you can't be here. Because that, I mean, you look at, there's a couple passages where the Bible talks about if anyone causes rivalry or division, have nothing to do with that person. There's no process in that. It just says they got to go. It just says that. So as 1 Corinthians 5 says that about believers. When he says don't be around these people, he's saying people who profess to be believers. The Bible doesn't always have all these processes that we kind of have in evangelicalism. Sometimes the Bible is actually more firmer than we are. It'll just be like, look, if a person professes to be a believer and does these things, don't even eat with them. And we'd be going to lunch with people. Like, so the Bible is way more straight than, than, and strict than we are at times. So I think there are, there are times when, depending on the nature of the sin and its impact on people, I can overlook it or, you know, it just depends. It really depends on that. And then I have to, which we're going to talk about this more next week, you got to make sure that it is sin and it's not sin to you. Like, there's a difference between you're breaking my Ten Commandments and you're breaking his. And we have to make sure that we know, like, what, what is it we're really evaluating? Like, is it? So I, so I do, I think there are times when a, a person is sinning and you rebuke them, but I think you measure that by the impact of the sin. I don't think it has to be everything needs to be rebuked because some stuff you just overlook. That's the best way I can describe it. Now, I'll, I'll explain a little bit more next week when we talk about forgiveness in us, how we, how we grow in that. Um, how do we respond when someone thinks we should apologize to them for something, but we truly know we did nothing wrong? What could we say to them to help that person? So, so I've dealt with this a lot in my life. And oh, I used to be really offended at that. Now I'm at a place like, what does it hurt? Like, what, like if, if someone thinks I offended them, and, it's, and they make that known to me, they think I sinned against them. If I don't think I've sinned against them, I can, I, I can still apologize that this person was hurt by something that I said or they perceived me to be that way. Mm -hmm. I, I, this, is just a, this is a rule for me. This is just me. I will not ask for forgiveness for something that I didn't, that's not sinful or clearly described to me as sin. I will not. Because when I ask for forgiveness, that means something to me. That's I've committed a moral wrong against you, and I need to, Jesus died for that sin. And I was forgiven for that sin by him. I need to ask you for your forgiveness as well. I do not. I don't. I, unless you can show me this was sin against you, then I'm not. But I can apologize and will easily do that, that I said something that you processed in a way that you got hurt by that. I, will, I can apologize for that. But I'm not asking for forgiveness unless I'm clear that it's sin. Because then, 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 then forgiveness loses its meaning to me. It's like, listen, if, if you're offended because you didn't like the way I said something in a message, I didn't sin, though. That's not necessarily sin against you. You just didn't like the way I said it. I get that. That's fine. There's going to be preferences. There's people who tolerate my teaching style, my jokes, my humor, my street references, all that. Cool. But no one's forcing you to be here either, though. So it's like you have to make that decision. But I think, like, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness because someone doesn't like something that was said or a decision that was made. But, if, if it's, but I can apologize that, you, that, it, hurt, that it came at you that way. And I may even adjust how I do things. One time, somebody came to me and said that I made a joke about the transgender community. And 
they were offended by that. I didn't think the joke was sinful. I just made a reference to something. They were offended. And I, I was like, you know what? I can learn from that. I haven't said a joke like that again or anything close to it. This was like a year and a half ago, before COVID. I was like, all right, cool. That's not something I need to keep doing. I can do that. But I think when someone's asking you to, to, to you need to ask me for, first of all, that's insisting on your own way. So you get, that person has some other issues. Now, it depends on how they're doing it. But I do think it doesn't harm you to be like, all right, hey, listen. I, it, but but, it, but if, it's, if it's sin and you're not convinced and you say, listen, I have to be honest with you. I don't feel like I sinned against you, but I do. I realize that you're hurt and offended. So I apologize to you that what, what I said or did put you in a position to feel the way you feel. And that was, I, I can apologize for that. And I'll do that any day. But if you ask me to ask you for forgiveness, it needs to be clear that it's sin. And if you think it is and it's not, then ask somebody else to get involved. Because you could easily be like, I don't think it's sin, and it really is, and you're just avoiding the reality. But I'm careful about asking for forgiveness. I don't think there's semantics at all. Some people may, I don't. I think that phrase is different than, I'm sorry. That's a different thing to me. So. As a believer, how do you separate rebuking a brother versus, quote, telling it like it is, end quote? and keeping it real as an excuse to enact self-righteous judgment on others and speak harshly? So I think you answered the question. Like I, so, like, so here's what I would say. What, what scripture is tell it like it is? Like what scripture does that come from? I, I can go to James about taming the tongue, right? We can go to James 3 and talk about taming the tongue. We can go to... Ephesians 4, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Like, telling it like it is, is, is really satanic self-righteousness. It's like, because, okay, so or another question would be, do you want God to tell you like it is? Like, what if God imitates the way that you do? Like, what if God forgave people the way that you forgive? What if he forgave you the way that you forgive others? Like, we, I don't want God to tell it like it is. I want him to be gentle. <laughs> I want him to be like, my son. No, 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 no. You know, I don't want to hear no, who do you think you are? Whoa. Listen, if John the Baptist, who Jesus, who said he was beloved by Jesus, saw him in Revelation and dropped to the ground and the spirit had to pick him back up, then we can't stand before Christ. If his best friend couldn't even stand in front of him, what you think me and you going to do? It said that the spirit had to hold John up. It's going to take the spirit of the father and the son to hold me up to be living. Look at it. It ain't going to happen. So I, I don't want God to treat me like that. And this is, and this is, this goes back to Matthew 7, 12, the golden rule, right? So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Listen, none of us want people to tell it like it is. And you may think, now nah, I'm all right with it. I want people to be honest. Yeah, but then you get offended when they are. I don't think so. I don't think that's reality. I think we need to say, okay, what, 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 what fruit of the Spirit is that? And telling it like, and I'm from that. I'm from telling it like it is, and it's, it's, it bears no fruit. It's, bears, it's James 1.19, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Telling it like it is, is just, to me, is just more a worldly way of saying, I ain't taking nobody's crap. And it's like, well, God says, well, I've taken yours every second of your life. So I just think it's a little different. All right, this question is from me. <clears throat> Um, you uh, you just said that telling it like it is, you said it's worldly, uh, but first you said it was satanic. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Mm, I will next week. Next week. Oh. 
Ah, uh, my brother. Okay, all right, I'll be patient. I'll be patient. Lord we've, willing, we'll be here next week. We've had these conversations, so yeah, I was, I was I hungry. Know, and I know when you, that's why I said, nah, I, nah, I know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So next week, that's a, that's a crucial point of next week's message, what he just asked. There's a crucial distinction that we have to make. So I really want to wait until next week because I want to develop it and help you understand why I'm saying it so it's not just an answer to a question, but we're going to walk through why that satanic language is a very significant distinction for how we process all of this stuff. So um, this is also a question for me um, based on um, the angle that, that the messages have been is for us to not be embittered, for us to forgive. But um, could you give hope to the person who might be the brother coming the seven times whatever? The person who sinned a lot? Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus didn't say this. He didn't, this wasn't the point of what Jesus was saying, what I'm about to say from Luke 17. This wasn't the point of what Jesus was making. But I'm, but I'm drawing this from knowing who Jesus is and all that he said about that. The person who's coming to say to forgive again, you have to understand something about that, what's really happening in that person. That's conviction that comes from the Spirit of God, right? That's not something to be ashamed of. That's something that actually verifies that you're genuinely saved. It's the inability or the unwillingness to do that, that, that where there's a problem. When you are coming, you, you are kind of like the, the next chapter of Luke, the tax collector. Remember that story where it says the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee walks into... And the tax collector said he was beating his chest and saying, I couldn't even look up, saying, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And the tax collector walked by, looked down at him and was like, man, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like this dude, right? The asking for forgiveness is not a sign, not always and often a sign of you're not being true and trying to fight. It's acknowledging the spirit. It's submitting to the spirit of God to humble yourself and go to that person. Because when we go ask someone for forgiveness, we run the risk of them being bitter and angry at us. Yeah. You ever ask somebody for forgiveness and it didn't go how you thought? Like they got offended. Well, thank you for asking for forgiveness because, you know, I'm really getting, you know, all of a sudden it's like, dang, now you need to ask me for forgiveness because I'm tempted. It's like it doesn't all, that's a, there are a few moments in our lives where vulnerability is at stake and, and is presented. And when we're asking someone for forgiveness, that's, that's a vulnerable moment, and we're typically motivated by the Spirit of God to do that. So if you're the person who has sinned and is asking for forgiveness, take heart. The Spirit of God is working in you, and you're telling this person, I've wronged, I understand. To me, and this is, I, I really believe this, when a person is asking for forgiveness, a Christian, a Christian, I think it's an indication that even though they're struggling with sin, they understand the gospel enough to know that forgiveness needs to be extended and asked for. Because if you don't ask for forgiveness, I don't think you understand the gospel. I just don't. If that is not a fundamental part of your life, then I don't think you understand. It's not because you don't sin that much. It's because you don't understand the gospel, I think. And we'll talk about that more next week. But I think a person who's the one asking for forgiveness, take heart. 
the Lord is working in you because it's, you know the word humiliation? Humility is a derivative of that word, right? It's humiliating to ask someone to say, hey, I sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? It's humiliating. And it's humbling. It's vulnerable because that person could be like, no, I don't forgive you. I can't believe you did this. That's happened to you before. Then it's like, wow. And sometimes you just got to be like, all right. I mean, I've, I've done what I was supposed to do. My conscience is clean. So take heart. Well, that was the last question. But ah, I, but, well, can I, can I say, say one more thing I forgot to mention during announcements? Um, for those who were uh, worshiping with us, you may have re realized that there were no words on the screen for a little while. That's because we need people to, uh, to help us with the sound and the media team. Yeah. Uh, people are over-tasked um, back there. And uh, so thank you guys for what you've been doing and how you've can been doing Can we thank them, please? Because they don't get... Tolu, Mike Perry, Tolu and Mike, these guys don't, they get, they get, people notice them when the screen, when the words are not on the screen. <laughs> you know, you don't really go back and say, hey, thanks for having the words up always. You look back like, man, where the words at? So, thank you. We're not giving you flowers because flowers die. We're just giving you, we're just talking about reality. Thank you for what you do. And it, we, it would, we'd appreciate it if there were others that were able to serve in that way. So that way you don't have to hurt your neck looking back because it also hurts your neck to look back and wonder where the words are. All right, having said that, enjoy your Sunday and the rest of the week. D groups this week are combined. Don't forget that. And uh, we'll see you when we see you.